Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Diana Driscoll back to the show. Diana, thanks for joining us. It is so good to see you again, Jason. And thank you for the invitation. Such an honor. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. And it's, I think, really good timing to kind of reconnect because, um, you know, you and I exchanged a few emails about some things that you're seeing in your practice and some of the uh, news and uh, emerging research that you've been seeing. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, last time we talked a lot about the vagus nerve and some of the kind of uh, viral impetus that led to um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Look or at you. Yes. <laughs> that uh, is something that affected you. It affected your son very uh, heavily. And we, we talked a lot about that last time. But um, you know, through your practice, um, and through all the, this information coming out around COVID, um, you're realizing that this may be affecting a lot more people now. And if, if nothing else, it's also gaining a lot more awareness now. And so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of you, you kind of propose like maybe it'd be a good to have a conversation about that. And I think that that sounds amazing. So I really appreciate you spending the time here helping educate us on this. Well, likewise, I'm I'm so grateful for that. It has been an amazing journey. Not all good, right, with COVID. Who knew that was coming? No one. But it's almost like the, the journey I went through, through illness and then recovery and research, et cetera, kind of set me up to help in this sort of situation with this pandemic. And it is never anything anyone anticipated happening. But when it did, we were ready. Mm-hmm. And we, we understood it on a very deep level. So it's the timing is not something you'd ever expect to happen. But um, we were ready from day one. Yeah. Well, actually, as you, um, you kind of highlighted, you uh, had read a book recently. And it, it was, uh, what was the title of that book again? Only the Paranoid Survive. <laughs> Only the Paranoid Survive. So, you know, there is something to kind of spending all of your time thinking about this really complex um, condition and situation that affects so many different parts of the body. Right. And then when these types of uh, events occur that kind of shake the whole world. You know, mm-hmm. you're, I feel like you at least have your feet set a little better to kind of receive that. And you are uh, right. So it's, you know, last time, and, and I guess I'll give folks a little background. You know, last time we talked about the vagus nerve, highly recommend going and listening back to that episode if you missed it. And uh, just to give a kind of two sentence overview of Dr. Diana's background um, is that she's an optometrist by training and a clinical director, and she herself recovered from POTS as well as her children. And um, around that time, I believe you shifted your career into studying POTS and running Mm -hmm. clinical trials, um, looking Mm -hmm. at why traditional treatment failed POTS so many times then and probably now for many people as well. Um, and just is very intimately familiar with um, not only POTS, but a lot of these kind of conditions and symptoms that are often um, hard to label, like chronic fatigue and brain fog and immune system dysfunction and um, gastrointestinal issues, um, temperature regulation, kind of the list goes on, right? <laughs> what we would call invisible illnesses, if you will. A lot of us just fall into this pot of, oh, doctors just don't get, get any of this. And they try to find a label of some sort. And um, and then the patients are just really left to flounder. It's, it's a horrible situation. It was for me. It was for my children. And I thought, no, this is a medical condition. We've got to, got to figure this out. And I might be put in just the right spot to do so with the medical background and 
I, um, I was patient zero and then I had two lab rats at home and um, it was 24 seven for over 10 years. Yeah. That's a lot of hours. That's way more than the 10,000 hour rule. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, it was. I just couldn't stop thinking about because you're living in the body of one and you're fairly miserable. And so just it was constantly going through my mind. Yeah. And our worlds collide because, well, for many reasons, but, you know, uh, the relationship with inflammation specifically, and I believe you coined the term inflammatory pots. Yes. And the vagus nerve and the, the general, in general, the nervous system. And then that all, of course, kind of ties in with HRV and our world of biomarkers. So That's right. And it, it's exciting to see some publications getting out about heart rate variability and um, COVID, post-COVID and I talked about how there's even one article about how heart rate variability tended to go down during the pandemic with people just being isolated. And I think Mm -hmm. we could all see the potential for a decline in health, you know, and social engagement, et cetera. But it wasn't just the, the victims of the virus itself that started to suffer health wise, but that abnormal inflammation, that's interesting you bring that up. I put out that term inflammatory POTS years ago, opened up POTS care. It's been over six years and it just seemed like it fell on deaf ears. It was the strangest thing. And, and I thought, well, just give it time. Um, people kind of have to adapt to some ideas uh, a little bit more slowly sometimes when they're completely what looked like it was out of left field. Mm-hmm. And then three years later, I talked about it some more and everything had shifted. And then there was more response. This is just brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> so sometimes you have to kind of wait for um, science and awareness to catch up. And um, that's part of the journey I've been on mm-hmm. this condition. Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, one last thing to kind of set the stage before we really kind of dig in is, um, you know, especially with COVID um, and how, you know, a lot there's a, a fairly significant portion of people who got covid that end up experiencing long-term difficulties and symptoms and things mm-hmm. you know uh and you've seen a collision between that world and your world mm-hmm. and what are some of the symptoms this is kind of just setting the stage again like that mm-hmm. people kind of typically have when they come to you and that you kind of relate into this pots uh, overarching label so to speak and that's such an interesting question because we think of pots as orthostatic tachycardia meaning the heart rate goes up when you're vertical sure we look for that absolutely you don't have that you don't have pots right but for me as a patient that was the least of my worry (laughs) that almost didn't even um, appear on my radar as a problem Mm. i was Mm. sick from head to toe and and the doctors saw the fast heart rate and they tried to slow it down, beta blockers. Mm-hmm. But I kept asking them, why is it going so fast? My resting heart rate at one point, Jason, was 123. Wow. And they were, they were going to put me on a stress test. And the doctor said, well, this won't take long. <laughs> I thought, why is oh, no. that? You know, my heart is just racing, just sitting there, perfectly calm. So well, what would cause it to go so fast? And I don't know inappropriate sinus tachycardia. That's not even a thing. What does that even mean? <laughs> I needed to know why, and no one was real interested in that. But at first, um, I think it's really typical, patients notice their heart starts acting weird, especially positionally. Their blood pressure goes up and down. They get dizzy real easily, lightheaded, shaky, kind of feel weak. They feel oftentimes like they just need to lay down. Something just they got hit with the wave, they don't know what it is, and the wave sometimes doesn't stop. And then it morphs toward, usually insomnia is dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then GI problems start to emerge. And then patients start to get an increase in anxiety-type symptoms, sometimes depression. Then they go from insomnia to difficulty staying awake, that extreme fatigue. And it isn't just physical fatigue, you know, where they, they're, they're 
physically weak. I remember telling uh, someone, I can't even raise my arm. This isn't fatigue. You know, Mm -hmm. if the house was on fire, it's going to burn around because I can't move. It's so far beyond that. But the mental fatigue, you'd mentioned brain fog. I think that's um, an early presentation of it. It felt like I was thinking through oil, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And then when it got really bad, I, I couldn't even think through oil. It was like trying to think through a brick wall. I lost the ability to read, had no short-term memory. They tested it. I was applying for disability um, and then couldn't stay awake. I was awake maybe three hours a day. It, was, it wasn't even all together. It was like an hour and a half in the morning hour and a half at night. And during that time, I wanted to be asleep. And I thought, what, what's going to happen? We just like snuff out or something to stop waking up. Um, and then started to lose weight. Um, the weakness continued, tremors. I had as many as 80 symptoms sometimes, and they kept changing. So that was like chasing a moving target. Mm-hmm. I noticed on some of the publications on post-COVID, they said patients sometimes continue to be sick for months. I thought, that's only because they followed them for months. <laughs> Just keep watching. You know, if they don't figure this out and start turning the patient around, it's going to continue to morph over time. And you'll replace that word months with years. And that's what typically happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really that really sets the stage, right? And mm-hmm. um, and something like this kind of brings a lot of world attention to it. Yeah. And and I think, you know, if I had to be a good podcast host, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, that we're we're not diagnosing anybody in this conversation. This is mm-hmm. medical advice. If you want to, if you are experiencing some of these symptoms, you should talk to a, a practitioner, you know, try to reach out to Dr. Diana directly if, if that makes sense for you. And yeah. uh, hopefully that was okay for me to say. Diana. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I think a disclaimer is really important because those symptoms are fairly, oh, um, non-specific, right? Mm-hmm. You could have cancer, you know, and have something similar or kind of sort of, um, So it is important that every case is dissected carefully. Like first, I'd say always, if your heart's racing like that, go to a cardiologist Mm -hmm. and make sure it's not a heart structural problem, your valve hasn't blown, or you you don't have a hole in your heart or what have you. Because if it's a structural problem, you need to approach it from that point. Um, One thing I think we can really kind of, I feel pretty confident saying is that you know, if you've experienced something like COVID or you've gotten a, a virus or you've had some sort of, you know, major um, health event, and then you have kind of hard to explain ongoing symptoms that maybe seem to change and really affect your quality of life, right. that that's not just, quote unquote, how life is. And, oh, true. you know, it's also... Pro, you know, I feel fairly confident saying it's also probably not just aging, you know, like right. a lot of people, depending upon when they get into these situations, are like, well, I guess this is just what happens. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, bad luck. Yes, it was potentially some bad luck, but um, it's not something that is potentially irreversible or unaddressable. Um, it may take time and work, but there are people such as yourself out there who have done it and gone through it and are now kind of sharing information with the rest of the world about um, your own journey as well as what you're seeing in the research and in the news. Yes, I am so proactive now in my health because I am unwilling to just kind of live with things. I, I knew something went wrong. And at first the doctor said, well, just, you know, push through. And then two to five years, likely you'll return to the daily activities of living. And I said, you mean in two to five years, I could what, get dressed? Is this the, is this the goal here? You know, I, mean, right. I am a working professional who is completely disabled by this. Um, so that was unacceptable. 
But I do think there's a spectrum. And although I was on the extreme end of that spectrum, got extraordinarily ill, there's plenty of people who are on the other end of the spectrum, which who they, they could think, oh, I'm getting old, or I'm just stressed out, and their health may not be quite as good as it could be. Um, and there's ways for them to be proactive. And for whatever reason, they're um, just instead trying to make it to the next day. And something I, I called pretend living, you know, it's just not your best. Mm-hmm. I've been there. I don't ever want to go back. So I'm extraordinarily proactive in my health now and plan to continue to be so. And I think so many of us can be uh, to be the very best version of ourselves. Um, they don't have to be super sick like I was to learn that. Yeah. Mm. And so, you know, you mentioned a lot of different symptoms um, mm-hmm. that can occur. And obviously, you, like you said, your case was pretty extreme, yes. um, but people may experience, you know, one or a subset of those symptoms. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing this pop up in COVID patients, mm-hmm. um, what they're calling long haulers, yeah. right? Yeah. And, um, and, you know, one of the comments that you made to me is that these clinics that are addressing long COVID are um, using, you know, tactics that you've seen with POTS as well right. um, from kind of the um, traditional medical system. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of those things being like, you know, water, salt, exercise, antidepressants, right. counseling, right. Um, beta blockers. And, uh, and so, you know, maybe you could unpack that a little bit. Some of that mm. seems to me like reasonable and others seem really interesting. Um, yeah. So what have you oh, kind of The hairs seeing? on the back of my neck go up <laughs> when I hear this, because it was just such a horrible journey, right, for all of us. But initially, I was working with the doctors to do traditional treatment. I went everywhere, and I thought, well, they must know, you know. So, okay, let's do this. And um, my kids and I just kept getting worse. I knew something was wrong. But um, it makes sense to, say, have salt or extra water or blood volume-enhancing medications if you're dehydrated. Um, if you're not dehydrated, then... It's just a means of covering up some symptoms that I think instead they need to be brought to the surface so you can look for true response to treatment. Um, I found that trying to cover up the symptoms just allowed the underlying problems to worsen. Mm. And even though it was gradual and it would kind of come and go, when I looked back over the months, I could see definitely decline. so I had to step away. Just It was a real scary time back then because I had no answers. Um, my kids were sick. My son extraordinarily ill and just stepped away from all traditional treatment. And so I don't think this is right. Instead, we're going to try to figure this out and set up a corporation, genetic disease investigators, and start to do more formal studies um, to get those answers. So I'm a huge believer in not trying to cover up the symptoms and anything I put in my mouth or into my body had to be somehow addressing the underlying problem. Mm. Um, And any symptoms that developed, I wanted to be aware of them so I could figure out where they're coming from. It's not unlike using something like, you know, the CoreSense um, heart rate variability monitor to to pick up things early as possible, uh, to address them before they become a problem. I, I think that's the proper approach to our health. Mm, so it's the paying attention to those feedback loops, yes. um, not not just um, intervening on the feedback loop. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's like like taking your heart rate variability machine and just burying it rather than see you're declining. Right, right. This information could be important and maybe it will help me figure out what's going on. And then I could watch to see if I got it right. It should improve, right? So it is kind of along the same lines. And although you're measuring something um, very specific and with very objective data, I was just looking for a response to heart rate, the ability to stand, the ability to survive till the next day, have a bowel movement, you know, as we talked about in the last interview. 
So, and those are objective enough at that point. So what have you been seeing? You know, we talked a little bit and hinted a little bit about um, COVID kind of, uh, you know, maybe um, causing an increase in POTS and, Mm -hmm. and, or at least bringing more awareness to it um, at a minimum. Uh, You know, what have you been seeing in your clinic and kind of Mm -hmm. what, how have you been linking those data points together? (laughs) Yes. No, I would definitely seeing COVID patients. And um, again, not a surprise to me, but I remember the first publication I came across, I think it was in, I was in Times, I'm not positive. And they said, it looks like these long haulers are developing something really rare. Mm. called POTS. I was like, yeah, I think so. You know, And then it didn't take long for them to start figuring it out. So um, again, no surprise to us. But what was interesting, and I think so important, it's very easy for a COVID patient, and I understand this, to feel like the virus must still be in me or doing damage, or my case of POTS is different because it involves this virus we don't understand well. And I think instead we approach those cases by saying, no, the virus is gone. And most of the patients were not the dramatically ill COVID patients. They were not the ones, you know, on a ventilator or in the hospital for a month. They're the ones who had tended to have a milder form, not unlike my first virus where, okay, a couple days maybe, you know, and then cough and some other symptoms. But Um, not a debilitating case of COVID. And the symptoms of POTS start to occur a few weeks later. So they build gradually and it's it's easy to misinterpret that and think, oh, well, maybe the virus is still there. And it feels, I mean, as a POTS patient, it felt to me like my body was being destroyed. Like I, I wouldn't have been surprised if somebody said, you have something in your blood that's just eating you up, you know? Yeah, that's what it felt like. So I could see how that would be very easy to confuse. But if the virus is gone and what has remained is the abnormal response to that virus, like you had mentioned, this inflammatory response, if we approach it from that direction instead, then we have a chance of getting a patient on top of that, allowing repair sooner the better because there can Mm -hmm. be some permanent damage done and the patient can go on with their life but there's a reason they're set up for it where someone else who can get the same virus, et cetera, even have a worse reaction bounces back just fine. Um, So the problem is coming from inside. We just have to figure out why, why Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily a COVID thing. And I think it'd be very easy to confuse that. And to me, and again, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on my podcast, but it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I have, you know, I have, I guess you could say the opportunity to have a lot of information flowing through me right. and from various points in the world and lots of different things going on. Yeah. And, uh, it's, you know, around, COVID, I have seen for the folks who have ongoing symptoms after, you know, the normal time to recover from COVID is mm-hmm. to me, like immediately it strike, struck me as um, that they were at least nervous system related. And yeah. that was just kind of my bias. And, you know, I'm always thinking about the nervous system, but right. um, everything from the elevated heart rate, I have heard people telling me about that, that they've mm-hmm. had uh, elevated heart rate that seems like they can't control it. And it's, um, just when they're sitting around, you know, inexplicable. Um, I have, uh, had people talk to me about anxiety, um, Mm -hmm. like symptoms, um, insomnia as another one. Um, and you know, uh, to me, like the common ground on all of that, that it's in uh, related to my world is Mm -hmm. inflammation and the nervous system, And the things that I kind of recommend people do, again, not playing doctor or anything like that, but just trying to get the basics right. Like, you know, from my perspective, um, controlling your breathing, controlling your stress levels, um, you know, looking at your nutrition, your micronutrients, trying to avoid 
junk food and inflammatory foods and things like that. And, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, always kind of start with the basics first like that in general, if anything's not going well. Um, But then, you know, pointing people towards um, providers and clinicians and research that is going deeper on that stuff. And so, you know, how do you kind of, I know that you have a lot of complexity to how you address these situations in your practice, but, you know, how do you kind of think about it and frame, you know, people, how can people start to think about addressing some of this stuff? And I think the approach you mentioned is so important. You've got to have basics. Without the basics, you can't get to the next level, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One problem I had as a patient, though, was that I was already kind of at that level. I was in great shape and uh, fitness was super important to me. Nutrition was like a hobby, you know, yeah. had all these great habits and stuff. And yet down I went. So I knew that that was going to be insufficient for my recovery. And I, I couldn't figure out what happened. I was such a healthy person. So um, instead we approach it or have to approach it from absolutely you have to have the basics in place. You cannot ignore them. Um, and we did find that the longer patients are sick, we see patients who've been sick two weeks or 35 years, can you imagine, um, and the entire spectrum there. But the longer they've been sick, the more they step away from those basics mm-hmm. because, one, it's not working. You know, they feel like, okay, right. I'm religious with this, that, and the other. It's not working. I'm just getting sicker. And then, two, they're in survival mode by now. So, and I remember survival mode where it's, it doesn't matter what you eat. You're so sick anyway, nothing works, you know, if you will, or you're too sick or weak to exercise and that doesn't help. And I got to the point I couldn't handle any stress, like nothing. I couldn't make a phone call, Jason. I couldn't order a pizza or, you know, make a doctor's appointment. I couldn't do it. If someone... Uh, called, they'd have to leave a voicemail or someone knocked on the door, they could rot outside because there is no way I could open the door and like try to have a conversation. So um, it wasn't enough. And I had to look at medically what is happening and what did happen. And it was just layers. And even though my kids and I all had pots, we all presented differently and we all had some different layers and that I wasn't anticipating but it taught me to um, look at every individual case as an individual. Don't presume anything. Um, and that helped. But you might remember from the Driscoll theory, that book I put out like eight, 10 years ago, the first thing I figured out was this propensity for abnormal intracranial pressure. And we had to fix that first while we're figuring out everything else. Um, and that was helpful. That's not everybody, but it's probably 70% or so of the patients mm-hmm. we see wow. here at Bots Care. Yeah, we can't ignore that. And, um, and, and what is that, if you don't mind kind of uh, no, describing it? Absolutely. Uh, usually starts with high intracranial pressure. I see a lot on social media where patients are going right to low intracranial pressure. That's usually a mistake because they present the same way. Um, but with high intracranial pressure, the cerebrospinal fluid that bathes the brain and goes down the spine um, and allows it to float and it protects it from getting knocked in the head or something doesn't slam up against your skull. The brain has a way to float and it allows um, oh, toxins, etc., to be flushed out. So we're always producing cerebrospinal fluid. We're always draining it. But if that balance gets out of whack for any reason, that pressure builds, um, it makes us more prone to fainting, everything from fainting to um, pressure on the brainstem causing all kinds of autonomic symptoms. Certainly brain fog because it basically squeezes out what little blood circulation is going to the brain, which is one reason we tend to faint more. So we have to figure that out and, and then Once that's figured out, we can look at, okay, if that pressure was high, what drove that? Why is that happening? 
and then we have to go through those layers. So it is very complicated. I have a dashboard I use for every patient that's huge. It's huge. <laughs> I'm sure you have an amazing monitor. <laughs> I've got multiple monitors. This dashboard is huge. Um, Cause I have to know every patient in kind of a nutshell, what has gone on with them in the past? What type of patient is it? What are they dealing with? What have we ruled out? What do we need to look into? And it is complex. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, at a high level, kind of what are the main areas that you end up addressing with people? Yes. Um, yes. We look at, you had mentioned the neurological stuff. That's so important. I think we pre-qualify all the patients. We have to make sure they're ones we can help, right? So we want to make sure they've seen a cardiologist if their heart's acting up, which should have, um, and make sure it's not a heart problem. We have to make sure it's not a, a neurological disease like ALS or Parkinson's, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, something like that. Those can start with the presentation of pods. They morph rather quickly, though, allowing us to figure that out. So that's not too terribly difficult. Most patients we see have been sick for a long time. And some have seen, you know, gazillion doctors. So it's, it's not like they lack for a doctor to look at them. They lack for someone just to look in a different direction. But we do have to make sure that there's not a neurological disease driving those things. That's important. And then we want to look at basically, <laughs> sounds simple, every system of the body <laughs> to see <laughs> what's going on. And we look at every system. So um, the central nervous system, of course, is important. We talked about that. Um, high intracranial pressure or not, that can be affected. The peripheral nervous system is important because we get weak or there's muscle problem. And then the autonomic nervous system. And we want to dive into everything from endocrinology to uh, inflammation that could be hiding. And I say hiding, um, many times chronic inflammation isn't properly identified. Unless it fits in the traditional markers where CRP or SED rate is mm. high, doctors don't see it. Mm -hmm. And for rheumatological illnesses, unless it fits a slot, you know, lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever, um, if they can't give it a label, it just remains this mystery to them. And I think that's just a tragic mistake. So as practitioners get more comfortable with going into inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, other chemicals, where those traditional markers may still be fine, um, those patients won't get ignored anymore. And I think as patients, we need that validation. We need that, but we have to explore that very deeply. And it's like we're playing detective. I'm looking so closely you know, for any clues. What is getting missed here? And um, how did that get missed? My own journey with it where I knew there is no way you can be this sick without something showing up somewhere, you know, mm -hmm. we're just not looking closely enough or maybe deeply enough or what aspect of bodily function are we not exploring? Let's go there. Um, and had to do that. And you might remember we started by looking in the eyes because that was my background. Mm -hmm. we thought, well, let's just look in there. Maybe we'll find something. And the eye is the only place you can look directly at blood vessels. You can look at the optic nerve, which is a direct extension from the brain and a lot of systemic disorders show up through the eyes, but I could correctly identify who was a patient and who wasn't out of 60 um, uh, volunteers correctly 90% of the time, just by looking in the back of the eye. I didn't wow. even know what I was looking for. At the time. <laughs> yeah. And I started to see some patterns. So that, wow. that helped too. It helped being a geek and extraordinarily detail oriented and persistent and sick. Mm -hmm. It helped being as a patient. It really did. As horrible as it was to go through. And oh, when brain fog was really bad, I had to read over and over. I was in the unique position of being affected. Mm -hmm. So it did give me an advantage. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. And, um, and you've said that you actually have already also started treating some people who had COVID. Yes. And right you know, away. Yeah. It was how does, amazing. How that? Mm-hmm. Um, just like our other POTS patients, honestly, if there's anything we have to talk to them about is, um, there's still some fear of, are you sure my lungs aren't damaged? Are you sure the heart's not damaged? Because it feels like it is. Mm. And I remember going through that, like shortness of breath was my worst symptom at first. I just couldn't breathe. Um, But I knew something was up because I I felt like my lungs were in a can or something. I would inhale and I could only go so far and it would just stop. Um, And I saw six pulmonologists, Jason. I said, I'm just not getting to the right doctor. You know, this is something. And, but there were times it was better. Like, why can I breathe right now? That's weird. You know, Um, and their conclusion after all of that investigation was, it must be anxiety. (laughs) Oh, geez. Okay, here we go. You know, no, there's something else going on. But I can see the COVID patients are really they have to find peace with the fact that someone has looked into that mm-hmm. and someone has said, has blessed them with, it's okay. Structurally, it's okay. What is remaining, it feels like it's structural. It's not. And it's hard. It's hard. And have you, I know it hasn't been um, that long in the relative, you know, scheme of things. Right. Um, but, you know, how has that been going working with folks who, you know, uh, got COVID and then ended up coming to you afterwards? Uh, yes. I oddly, you know, I really enjoy seeing patients and I love the one on one because we can understand each other. <laughs> it's like it's almost like, OK, I validate them. That's great. But they validate me, too, because okay, yeah. they experience <laughs> some similar things and that's a real special relationship and something I always cherish. And I feel very honored that they've come to me for help. So it is, it's super special and it's, it's hard to find that. I remember over and over, I go through, I go so deeply into the science. I go through this big presentation on what, how, how they got sick, what happened to their body, what dominoes fell, expose all this science, give them literature the whole bit. And go ta-da, you know. <laughs> and what they would say was, "I'm just so happy to meet someone who recovered." <laughs> like, oh yeah. After all that, you know, that's what your takeaway. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'd be whiteboarding it and everything. Um, I'm so into the science, but they're so excited just to meet someone who gets it mm-hmm. and who understands how difficult it is and the suffering they've been going through. Where it isn't just the doctors sometimes it's not all doctors don't get me wrong um but it's hard for their family their friends their loved ones to understand what they're going through because we don't have adequate words to describe it right so and the diagnosis honestly is not sufficient to explain the level of suffering that's possible it implies that this is really just fast heart rate when you stand if you sit down you'll be fine right I was anything but fine sitting down. There was no position where I was like, oh, this feels good. You know, no, I was sick in any position. I think that's pretty typical. So being able to not only validate the patients, relate to them, which is wonderful, um, and then start to help them along the way is great. COVID, I enjoy those patients because they're fairly early in their journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, you can get some permanent problems. I started to. And praise God, they were reversible, but I was so close to not being able to reverse them. Um, So I feel extraordinarily fortunate. But most COVID patients haven't been sick as long as I was. Um, And the sooner we get someone to identify the problems, the easier it is to start to reverse it. So I do enjoy seeing them. And there's one thing that, you know, you uh we all deal with which is that we all have limited time in the day and right. so you, <laughs> you can't you can't meet everybody in the world one-on-one right and no. so um i think you've been developing you know kind of a system that you can that is a little bit more scalable to reach more people right. and uh, we had talked about that and mm-hmm. you know that 
type of stuff is always interesting to me because because of that same reason, like whether it's cost or location or just mm-hmm. time in the day, it's hard to get access to one-on-one care, you know, everywhere. And oh, you are uh, so right. And I've got a huge waiting list now, which I feel like that's a blessing. That's wonderful. We've got to figure out some way to scale POTS care. But until then, could we take some of what we know about some of these commonalities and just help people with those, you know, and could that be sufficient to get them either where they need to be or so significantly improved it'll buy them some time or they can return to work or whatever. So I've been working on that for a while, Um, but just releasing, we're calling it POTS care package Mm-hmm. And it'll have it'll have your heart rate variability, the core sense in there. Um, I love that, and it has We're an <laughs> app. Oh, I'm so glad um, I developed an app, really, to a way to deliver audios to patients. So we can start to teach them and talk them through some of this. Um, if you listen to say a couple audios a week, they'll go for a little over three months. And then uh, supplements that, again, cover some commonalities that are common and a few other workbook and some other things. I'm really excited about this. Um, We start to talk about some of the vascular problems, the vascular inflammation. And um, that's just cutting edge new stuff. I'm really excited about getting that out. So... Yeah. That is exciting. So mm-hmm. I see, you know, the the package breaks down into dietary recommendations, um, specially blended supplements. You've got the uh, biosensor technology, which uh, we're ha- honored to play a part in, <laughs> um, help with exercise. And then you've got the audio to kind of teach and support about these different uh, places and then the workbook to kind of right. make it all. Uh, and we go medical. Together. We go medical. This is not a doctor-patient relationship, but there's some things like, you know, I talked about the high intracranial pressure propensity. I want people to know that and know how to identify it and some things they could do on their own, even if they can't get their doctor's help with that. So if that's a thing for them. So it it isn't just lifestyle, et cetera, because as you know, for me, that wasn't sufficient for me to get to where I was going. So reaching a little bit beyond that to help people, and I'm hoping it'll be hugely helpful, much more for the masses, if you will, because I can't see everybody, um, and make a dent in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that high, let's uh, do a quick sidebar on that high intracranial pressure, because yeah. I think it's not um, intuitive to me how that differs from low, and, right. uh, you know, and I think uh, if I if I can see, say this correctly, that high intracranial pressure kind of exhibits, there's some potential for dizziness, nausea, mm-hmm. neck pain, sleep disturbances, headaches, flushing, mm-hmm. and vision changes, right? right? So, <laughs> I'm pretty much the same for the other. Okay. So, yeah, you do have to pick it apart. <clears throat> we'll look inside the eyes. We uh, reevaluate a brain MRI. Because we're looking much more closely than certainly the radiologist is going to look. But we can look also at response to treatment to figure this out. And we have seen some patients who not only they were convinced, but their doctors were convinced they had a leak. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I understand you're presenting that way. I completely get that. But the proper approach to this is always, excuse me, stay as uh, less invasive as possible, low risk. If you can figure it out without having to puncture the dura, setting someone up for future leaks down the road, we want to do that. And we can usually do that. So I would say nine times out of 10, but it's much more than that. It's probably 96% of the time if I had to pull a number out. Um, the patients who present as low intracranial pressure are often high. And it pushes, as opposed to a leak, pulling things down in the skull. Um, The high pressure around the brain pushes things down, which is why you get a similar presentation. And you have to figure that out. That's part of what we do here is Mm. help people with that. I think it's 
it's a real mistake to do something invasive to get that answer if you can do it without it. Would you mind specifically talking yeah. a little bit about the um, anxiety and antidepressants kind of yes. side of this? Yeah, absolutely. My daughter, she was the most functional of the three of us. My son and I were just, that was it. You know, he missed three years of school. And um, I got to the point where at first I had moments of functionality, <clears throat> sometimes days, although not often two in a row, you know. Um, and then those windows started to close. It was just horrible, you know, basically bedridden. But my daughter was able to stay in school. And she was much more functional than I was. But she was riddled by that anxiety depression. And I say it like it's one word <laughs> because they always came together, you know. And I think this is something it's so easy in the body of a patient to experience it and look at your situation and say, well, of course, you know, of course I'm depressed. I, and I remember as a patient getting hit with like this wave of depression and thinking, well, yeah, I'm sick. I have no job, no friends, no answers, no prognosis, no help. You know, you just, just keep listing them. But I remember the first day it hit and I was rationalizing it and then it stopped Jason, like somebody just flipped the light switch. And I went, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm in the exact same situation. And yet the depression's gone. What just happened here? And then it would hit again. And I was working in clinical trials. I was a patient in clinical trials in, in POTS at the time. And I called the representative and I said, you need to be checking brain chemistry. <laughs> I don't know what the heck that was. You know, I thought they would take me seriously. Like, oh, Dr. Driscoll, we'll get right on that. You know, now they just thought we were nuts. But um, it morphed over time, although maybe not as bad as my daughter, the anxiety increased too. And it was almost an OCD-ish overachievement to the extreme um, where you're not even really comfortable in your own body and mind. Um, it wasn't always that bad, but it can get that way. And we certainly see patients like that. Um, at first when the quote anxiety hit, <laughs> It felt like my body was having a panic attack without me. If that makes any sense. Hmm. Everything is just racing out of control. And they're like, well, you must be having a panic attack. It's like, no, I'm cool. Cool as a cucumber here. But then over time, I did start to feel the anxiety. And this is not new science, Jason. I didn't make this up. Um, other people have already figured out that certain inflammatory cytokines can contribute to that depression or even dysthymia. And unless it's addressed as a, an inflammatory problem, the patient can remain stuck in that. Um, the anxiety type of stuff can be secondary to the inflammation where it causes oxidation. And that oxidation changes the brain chemistry. And some of us, especially chronic inflammatory patients, I'll always be a patient to some degree because my genes work against me. I know that. I can stay on top of it. I'm not a sick person. Um, my lifestyle is perfectly normal, but I do some things to maintain my health. Mm -hmm. um, but that oxidation can present before someone gets ill as very, very high functioning, like, um, Overachievers, you know, the hmm. straight A, you know, very best. And well, that was kind of me. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering why, you know, why can't I just kind of ease off at school? Why is why is a B not okay? You know, and I remember thinking, well, it's just the way I'm put together. And as long as that is not affecting me negatively, you can enjoy the positives from that, right? But when I got really sick, and it was shifting toward this is not a good thing and mm -hmm. it had to be addressed. Um, so some of that I do have in the POTS care package because it is such a common thread. You hear it all the time. And those patients truly suffer. They mm -hmm. truly suffer. So, um, yeah, it's another treatable aspect to some of that. So when you work with folks that you do a lot of extensive testing on yes. different things and you're looking very deeply at the details and the specifics mm -hmm. of inflammatory responses and, you know, um, 
doing a, a whole host of tests. But then when you actually go to make change and inter, um, intervene, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. that a lot of that revolves around as non-invasive as possible. Yes. You're first looking at, you know, what's kind of evidenced and outlined in your package is dietary recommendations. You're looking at, um, you know, biosensing and monitoring stress levels and monitoring inflammation on a regular basis. Um, And then blended supplements, specific supplements um, that are not just like, you know, get your vitamin D or vitamin C, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, although we talk about that, absolutely. But um, you and I talked about the vagus nerve component and how it actually ended up not really being a vagus nerve problem. The vagus nerve problem was secondary to a neurotransmitter problem. So we're able to correct that over the counter, which is just such an incredible thing to have happened. Um, So, and then I do talk about the propensity for high intracranial pressure, what could be done about that, et cetera. So I I try to be as all-inclusive as possible. But one reason we have to stay as low risk as we can and the least invasive that we can is because an inflammatory patient by nature is sensitive. And that's secondary to the inflammation itself. So if you approach an inflammatory patient um, with something powerful, they can have an extraordinarily adverse reaction. And kid gloves, it's all about kid gloves. And we have to kind of baby step here and get on top of the inflammation. Then they can tolerate more normal levels of things. But you want to get a hold of that sensitivity or it just gets worse. Mm. And then they end up sensitive to everything, you know, mm-hmm. and they'll live by themselves in a home with nothing, you know, no, no carpet, no anything. And they're sensitive to water. You know, it's just, it's a horrible scenario. So you treat the inflammation properly, you get a hold of it. The sensitivity starts to diminish. Yeah. Do, it's, do, it's, and, uh, and, uh, the psychological kind of, crossover here is really fascinating to me as well so it's uh come back coming back to the like um anxiety and depression and again i think you thank you for also kind of hinting that those are not the same thing we kind of often like you know say anxiety and depression as if it's like this one thing and it's not and they're different but but in general you know have you been able to see a lot of success with people being able to get off of medications and things. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's huge. Well, yeah. that's something, um, pain medication, antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds. At first, when I was sick, the only way I could survive, Jason, was with Xanax. I couldn't, I was so, the sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight was just, I was just flooded with norepinephrine. I was shaking, you know, my heart's racing. And the doctor said, well, I know you're saying it's not anxiety, but it's kind of presenting that way. And it would just take that sympathetic nervous system down a notch and allowed me to survive. But once the underlying problems were fixed, I could go off of it and it's like, fine. And getting that balance back after living with that imbalance for so long and being... You just want to jump out of your skin, honestly. <laughs> you don't want to be in your body, you, and, but there's no escape. Mm-hmm. I remember trying to escape, you know, like moving or going in the closet or, you know, just really weird behavior, but my body kept coming with me. So I had to address that problem first. And absolutely, we tell patients, don't get in too big of a hurry. This is a slow process. But as you go through this, look forward down the road to the possibility of starting to wean off of some of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, Pain medications are interesting because usually when we see an inflammatory patient, depending on where that inflammation is coming from and what type it is and what damage it has done and what damage it continues to do, we can see a lot of pain Mm -hmm. and pain of all types. And I remember my doctor saying, Diane, I cannot believe you're going through this. 
without pain medication. <laughs> she said, most patients I know would want some help with that. And I said, you know, I don't. I said, one, I don't want to cover anything up. I want to see mm-hmm. if I can figure it out at the source of the problem. And then two, it would keep me from thinking well, ironically, one of the side effects. And I need to be as sharp as I can right now to, mm-hmm. to get some answers. But there was a time a doctor said, I'm going to put you down as a chronic pain patient. I said, mm-hmm. oh, no, you're not. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> I know what you think of those people. <laughs> okay. Right. Two, I said, this is not just this chronic, unidentifiable pain. So this is inflammatory pain. I can feel it. It feels different. Um, and I asked for an MRI of my connective tissue, lit up like a Christmas tree. I said, well, there it is. That's why it hurts. Of course, that should hurt. It's destroying the tissue. You know, It's like my body's melting. You know, Can someone help me with that? And Jason, the answer was, oh, just horrifying. She said, um, no, not without a label. Huh. I was like, what? Um, and this was where Jeez. the lack of appropriate labels was really a problem. And I just had to go rogue. But I remember that visit very well. I just started crying because it was like my last hope. You know, she had just held all the eggs of my basket in her hands and they just crashed to the floor. And I thought, I'm on my own on this. Unbelievable. So it's just such a horrible journey for most people. I really feel for it. But when we can identify properly the true underlying problems and approach them from that direction, no matter how difficult it is, and it can be really hard, I think that's the proper approach. And patients have a, a chance to have a normal life. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's... Uh... That's the best that one can hope for, I think, because like we are finding in the underlying messages that everybody's individual, everybody is unique to a degree. You know, yeah. we all have the same kind of biology and chemistry and stuff, but um, right. we're very complex organisms. And so how things manifest and express themselves and how all of the parts kind of combine into the whole it yeah. is different, right? And so. Absolutely. And that's not something I would have I would have totally understood, like with my kids and I, because I thought we've got to be the same, you know. Mm-hmm. And I setting up genetic disease investigators just look at some of those genes responsible. But as we work through it, I realized, oh, they got some genes from my husband. Imagine that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, those weren't perfect genes after all. <laughs> so that did influence it. And then once I got answers for our little core, then you think about, okay, what else could cause something similar? What else could worsen it? And just spent years expanding on it. So it isn't all a cookie cutter thing. It can't be. And I think patients know that intuitively. They're, they almost always know, oh, I'm special, you know. Like, yeah, everybody, everybody is complex. Yeah. What are you looking for in HRV with all of this? So mm-hmm. I know we talked a little bit about that last time too, yes. you know, especially around the vagus nerve activity and stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, just with this new context in mind and for a lot of folks now who are, you know, um, experiencing new symptoms or having new awareness about their situation due to recent right. world events, you know. Right. Obviously, I think HRV is a cool tool, and um, <laughs> but uh, you know, all of that aside, kind of what? Why is it important to you? What are you using it for? One, it's objective, and I think patients with a lot of these quote invisible illnesses really suffer for lack of objectivity, and without something objective, um, others think they must just be making it up or they're weak or something. So it offers them something concrete that they can go, oh, look, this is truly uh, low or abnormal. And as they work toward getting better, they can watch for that improvement. And it's something as a patient, it was such a difficult journey of recovery. Anything that improves along the way, you just hang on to that. Mm -hmm. I'm headed there. I'm going to get there. And it, it provides them hope. I found it really interesting. One of the articles that was published about COVID and heart rate variability was that the heart rate variability showed an abnormality in the children with COVID prior 
to the development of the abnormal inflammatory cytokine that um, numbers in the blood still look normal heart rate variability showed it first mm -hmm. and then that inflammatory response syndrome took over but mm -hmm. that is really sensitive how great is that so i think and we all love a gadget right i would have <laughs> given almost anything to have something i could hold in my hand that was like a companion <clears throat> through that journey of recovery to know what was effective, how I was heading the right direction that was objective and was guiding me. So if we can also stay in that kind of talk about that kind of place of Zen, because when we get hit as patients with these waves, uh, it feels like anxiety, but heart rate starts taking off, we feel hot, we get just just we feel like our body's self-destructing. There's not a good term for this we call it episode. We get hit with those. If we let it take us down, we can get caught up in that cycle where mm -hmm. we feel it. We get more and more and more anxious. The inflammatory response is significant and we just get worse. So if we can somehow figure out how to slow it down, get through it, just get to the other side of it, it's going to pass. You feel like it won't, but it will. Then you can get back on top of it again and go on. So it helps slow some of the inflammatory response when those waves hit. Yeah, well, that's um, thank you for sharing that. That sure. you know, um, it's nice to have the ability to kind of check in with yourself and um, mm -hmm. the you know, this is um, this has been really timely information. I feel like, and yeah. um, there's going to be a lot of people kind of interested in this and potentially wondering, you know. Does this apply to me? You know, is this something that I should be concerned about? Maybe I have one or two of these symptoms, or maybe I haven't, I've just been feeling off. I'm not really sure what, how specific yeah. I can put my finger on it or anything. Yeah. Is there anything that you kind of want to leave with people um, just in closing some thoughts around any of that? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of thoughts. When, although this is all about POTS right now, because that's what the long haulers you're developing, POTS at least is, has objective criteria for diagnosis. So I see some patients suffering with chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia or whatever. This, no one has actually tested to see does their heart rate increase when they get vertical. Mm. So you can do a test at home. We're happy to talk people through that. And we look at patterns for the illness because if it's POTS, we know what we're doing. You know, we know all about that. Chronic fatigue is more expansive. You've got to rule out some other things, and that's important. Um, but I think there's a fair number, second point, fair number of people who are not living their best lives. And although it may not be POTS per se, I hope it's not, um, what I learned going through this and learning how to be proactive in my own health does help those who were whose inflammation is increasing gradually, say, due to aging or due to stress or even, heaven forbid, due to athletics, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, interestingly enough. Um, and then there's a fair number of patients dealing with inflammatory conditions that are identified. I think there's even more that deal with things that are not, mm -hmm. but they can be proactive. So a lot of the lessons I walked away from was also how to help those people. Everything from GI problems to dry eyes. Mm -hmm. And had I not gotten deeply into the autonomic nervous system and pods, I would not have figured these things out. So I'm really excited about helping people like with chronic dry eyes who suffer so much. And that's right in my wheelhouse. That was, mm -hmm. you know, that was where I started. So, <laughs> but had I not developed pods, I would have never gone to the autonomic nervous system, you know, with dry right. eyes. So there's so many other things to talk about and uh, to help people with. And I look forward to doing that. That's fantastic. And where can people find more information about you and some of the new, you know, projects that you have in launching? You are so great because we have so many things launching, right? And I um, I needed some place to put everything because I was ending up with all these websites. Oh, yeah, this isn't good. So I, I set up drdianadriscoll.com. Okay, <laughs> there you go. There. Yep. <laughs> so, of course, we're at potscare.com, but there'll be potscarepackage.com. There's 
the supplements at tjnutrition.com. There's geneticdz.com. But it's getting kind of overwhelming. <laughs> so drdianadriscoll.com has it all. Yeah. Okay. Well, perfect. And we'll, we will definitely link to that in the show notes. Oh, that's and great. Thank you. Yeah. No. And uh, Diana, this has been really great. Thank you for sharing more of that, you know, with us today and just building upon some of the stuff we talked about last time yeah. and re- relating it to, like we were saying before we hit record, just um, this very interesting event that we're all going to remember. It's not an event as in like a one-time thing. It's just um, not that often that uh, the world kind of unites around a common problem that we're all trying to deal with. You are absolutely right. We're making history on this and it is such a unique situation that was an oddly bonding thing to go through, although we were separated, you know, it was mm-hmm. kind of bonding. But I really appreciate it, Jess, Jason. It's always such a great opportunity. I always enjoy speaking to you and just talking to you. I love you're so calm. You just <laughs> you calm everyone around you. You're just delightful to be around. But <laughs> you're you. making uh, the world a better place. And I'm so grateful for that. Thank you as well. Yeah, thank you. And uh, that's the least I can do is just calm everyone down, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Excellent. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Dr. Diana. And, uh, you know, for folks listening, drdianadriscoll.com is a place to check out more information from you. And um, thank you for pulling it all together there. And we'll, we'll link to it from our show notes as well. That's awesome. Thank you, Jason. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com slash academy.